Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people with Brad Listy. That's me. You can hear me. And this podcast, while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it. It's free. It takes just a few seconds. And then during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. And where it says that, enter other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks cash money. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a lot of other amazing content as well, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge. Get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code Other People when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. folks, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is what you're currently conscious of. This is a series of zeros and ones. Thank you for being here. Thanks for joining me. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California, uh, where I am currently in something of a hurry. Uh, there's a lot going on. I've got my sister in town, my older sister, her husband. They have three kids. Uh, and then my younger sister is getting married week after next. So that's happening. And then uh, there's work stuff. And then there's my uh, daughter and my wife and my many responsibilities and so on and so forth. So there's a lot going on, as there usually is for most of us. And uh, so this morning I, I went to the gym, which uh, I try to do with some degree of regularity. It helps me uh, stay sane and stay healthy. So... I'm there, I am uh, attempting to uh, work on my fitness, and I was feeling kind of edgy because I have, you know, I have a lot on my mind, I was watching the clock, I'm trying to be efficient, and uh, 
you know, when I was done, I ran home. I actually physically ran home. The gym is, you know, it's relatively close to my house. It's about a mile away, maybe a little less. So uh, I, I run there and then I lift metal objects while like half looking at myself in the mirror. It's a very strange ritual, but you know, I run there and then I was running home in an almost trance-like manner and uh, I was entertaining an internal monologue, uh, you know, thinking to myself any number of things, uh, thinking to myself, I've got to get home, I've got to work, I've got stuff to do, don't get hit by a car, uh, don't step on that homeless man, don't forget to breathe, don't have a heart attack, <laughs> uh, and so on. And so uh, in the midst of this experience, uh, out of the corner of my eye, I see a blonde woman. A blonde woman. It happened in a flash. And uh, I think I hear a voice. I think I hear the words, excuse me. And I, you know, here I should add that I was wearing headphones. I was listening to music as I ran. Uh, and so I, I kind of half see this woman and I half hear the words, excuse me. And then I stop and I turn and there is indeed a blonde woman standing there. And she's, you know, I don't know, like 45, maybe 50 years old. And she's attractive. Not overwhelmingly so, but a nice-looking person. She looked kind. She looked fairly normal. And, uh, you know, I kind of take one of the earbuds out of my uh, ear. And she says to me in uh, some kind of foreign accent. might have been German. I mean, she spoke decent English, but I could detect some sort of accent. And she says to me, excuse me, sir. Uh, would you like some magazines to read? Would you like some magazines to read? And I look down and I see in her arms that she uh, has a stack of magazines, which she is now offering to me. <laughs> uh, and, and I said, uh, no, thank you. And then she said, okay. And uh, then I think I said, thanks again, or something to that effect. And then I turned around and resumed my run. So, you know, and, and as I was running, I was thinking to myself, uh, why would you offer magazines to someone who's running? <laughs> and then, you know, of course, it occurred to me that maybe this woman was crazy because there are a lot of crazy people in Los Angeles and particularly in my neighborhood. There's sort of a hive of crazy people where I live. Uh, maybe she was a Scientologist or some sort of evangelical religious person. You know, a Mormon, some sort of Christian. I don't know. And I didn't see what the magazines were, which bothers me now. Like, was it Sports Illustrated? Was it National Geographic? Was she simply trying to redistribute these things? Or was she proselytizing? I don't know. And it seems likely that I'll never know. Uh, was she crazy? She didn't look crazy. I have a pretty good eye for crazy after living here for 12 years. You know? She looked decently well-dressed, and she just so happened to be wandering the streets of Los Angeles attempting to hand out literature to uh, joggers. <laughs> it makes no sense, but it does occur to me, you know, to try to bring this, uh, bring this into some kind of point, it does occur to me that this little moment serves as an apt metaphor for modern times in publishing, and particularly in literary publishing, where we have people writing books of a literary nature, a great many of us, 
making the attempt, writing novels and story collections and memoirs and so on, uh, trying to find readers. In many cases, uh, desperately trying to find readers. But in this day and age, uh, many of us are moving too fast, mentally and otherwise, to engage uh, on a consistent basis with the long-form reading experience. So that's what we're doing, I've decided. We're essentially, uh, as writers, we're essentially out there in the streets, walking at a deliberate pace, trying to hand out books to people who are jogging. Or in some cases, sprinting. It's no easy feat. And, uh, you know, it seems obvious that the two activities are antithetical, but you know, what are you going to do? I think you just got to keep sitting still as much as you can. You keep doing the work uh, to the best of your ability until people come to you. And maybe they never do. Probably they never do, but you do it. Uh, you know, you do the work if you believe in what you're doing. And frankly, I think the world needs more stillness. It needs more stopping. I think I, I wrote about this once years ago, and uh, it's possible that I've mentioned it on this program before, but I had an idea for a holiday called Lawn Day, like L-A-W-N, Lawn Day, where uh, one day a year, everyone in America just goes outside and sits in their lawn and does absolutely nothing all day. No talking, no eating, no drinking absolutely nothing. You just sit there in your lawn and you look at your neighbors sitting in their lawn for like eight hours. <laughs> uh, can we make that happen? Are there any legislators listening to the program today? Mr. President, are you there? Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, my guest today is Jennifer Spiegel. She published not one, but uh, two works of fiction in 2012. The first was called The Freak Chronicles, a story collection that is now available from the good people at the Zank Books. And the second is a novel called Love Slave. Uh, it was published by Unbridled Books. Uh, very pleased to have Jennifer here, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen, the lovely and talented Jennifer Spiegel. I am in Phoenix, Arizona, and I'm in my house, and it is recently deserted from by my husband's family who had bombarded us for a while. Oh, God, the in-laws. 
They were my in-laws and my husband's brother and sister-in-law and their kids. Do you have a big house? I don't. I have a teeny, teeny, little, teeny house that I bought as a single woman. So it's really small. Oh my God! See, and like, listen, yeah. I, you know, I don't want to get, you, I don't want to get you on the air having to talk about your in-laws because I don't know what the situation is. But you can if you want. I can. Okay. Well, this is the thing about house guests is that it's really difficult. No matter how much you love the people, it's difficult to have people in your home. And I get into that situation, and I feel like an asshole because it's like I, all I want is for them to leave, and it's like. Yeah, I know. I know. It's, it's, <laughs> You know, my um, my husband's family are, they're genuinely good people, and I do have a lot of affection for them. I even love them. However, um, we're we're just radically different in our backgrounds, and uh, it shows pretty quickly, I think. How so? Like, what's your background and what's their background? Um, I'll, well, I'll get into it. I'll tell my husband, let's start with his family. They're um, Irish, mostly, with um, the... My mother-in-law is Southern Irish Catholic, and my father-in-law is Northern Ireland Protestant, and they also have a Slovakian grandma. And then my family um, were or were are mostly Jewish from Chicago. However, my fam, my mom and dad converted to Christianity when I was very small, so. I've got the whole Jewish thing going. However, I'm I was raised in churches, not synagogues. So it's really weird. You get together and there's a lot of my family's very vocal and loud and talkative, like a Woody Allen film. And my husband's family is very um they're not confrontational. They they certainly have confrontations, but they're they're just not as loud and obnoxious as my, my family might be. Yeah. All right. So, and how do you culturally, how do you identify? Do you identify Christian or do you identify Jewish or do you not identify with either? Oh, it depends on who I'm with. <laughs> um, I, um, that's, that's sort of nice. You have some, you have some flexibility. I do. It's a weird place. because I don't know if I fully belong anywhere. You know, I was, I truly was raised from third grade on going to church and I, what church? I am, uh, for like Presbyterian. Okay. So we're talking not Jews for Jesus. It was very much your um, waspy sort of experience. And I would say, however, culturally and ethnically, there's a line. My parents were full-blooded Jewish people from Chicago, and I, I can fit into either group. However, both groups probably notice that I don't fully belong, if that makes any sense. No, that makes sense. I don't. I, you know, I, I culturally, I mean, I've just been exposing my husband to this sounds so funny because it's my second mention of Woody Allen in two seconds. <laughs> I'm on my um, blog. I'm, I'm doing this thing where I'm doing a series on movies for writers, and I've just forced my husband to watch something like 15 Woody Allen films in a row. And he's, he's pretty much the whitest boy you've ever seen in your life. And I'm exposing him to this. And I realized what a um, you mean. I, you I, mean you mean white, like he's physically pasty white, or you mean just like whitest in, in his cultural sensibility? He is physically pasty white. However, <laughs> and he, living um, and living and living in Phoenix of all places, does he wear large like I, he, wide? He brim? just got stuck here. He just got stuck here. Okay. He's from New England, um, but he. Um, I mean, I think one of the funniest things to me, anyway, is that he just when I when I first married him, I was shocked at his propensity for mayo it just his use of mayo just kind of repulsed me because oh no 
I'm just like, you know, we're Jewish and we eat mustard and yes. on our corned beef we do not put mayo on there. Oh my god, and, I have a um, huge I have a huge uh, problem with mayonnaise. I do too. I really do. And it, it really just grosses me out. And um he He's just—he never had hummus before me. His exposure—I talk about my husband. He's letting me do this. He knows he has to just give me license to say whatever I want. <laughs> but he—he um, he just didn't have. I think. I think part of my Jewish background is a, a totally stereotyping. Um, just a huge sort of exposure to different ethnicities and a certain love of culture. Maybe. Am I talking? This is wrong, isn't it? No. Um, and he, he certainly is, I mean, I'm saying crazy things about my husband. Um, <laughs> he's, he's definitely an appreciator of, appreciator of different cultures, but uh, this is a guy who likes mayo on his sandwiches and never ate hummus and did not know what tabbouleh was prior to me. And so I just exposed him to all these Woody Allen films. And I think having been married to me now for about nine years, his... He, he gets a certain Jewish sense of humor, but I think for me, as I'm watching these films, there's a affinity and a kind of a, a sisterly, brotherly thing I'm feeling for the. As I watch the films, I just get it so much. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I don't know because I'm I'm I was raised a Catholic. I'm you know, but I, I'm not a practicing. But uh, I've always had a strong affinity for Jewish culture. I've always related easily to it. And I have no idea why, or like Jewish humor and Woody Allen movies, and like it's just because we're a fun people. Yeah, and just neurotic and and uh, you know all that kind of stuff, like that neurotic yeah. humor, like totally resonates with me. I think the good thing about the um, diversity is that um, both the Catholics and the Jews have a strong sense of guilt, and so we can share in that. Maybe that's it. Um, that and like persecution mania, maybe like a oh yeah, not not quite as much for the Catholics, but still, like I think. Catholic assimilation, at least, uh, you know, in the earlier part of the 20th century, I never experienced it. But I guess, you know, it wasn't necessarily easy for Catholics who were assimilating into uh, mainstream American life. They were sort of on the outs- outside, right? No. And, you know, his family was running from Ireland and, and uh, the Ukraine, and mine was running from the Russians. So it was, we have some similarities there. <laughs> Everyone's running from something. Right, right. <laughs> So how, okay, so then this begs the question: How did you guys um, wind up together? If you have these like you know disparate backgrounds, um, well, you know that's the thing is we both are uh, we both associate with Protestantism now, and we we did meet um, when he he's younger than me a little bit, and we met when he was in grad school, and um, I probably just talking about our the world and our beliefs and views and we just ended up together <laughs> you know how do these things happen i don't know okay but it wasn't like some sort of like a like really wildly opposites attract situation you know you know what i think we um no i don't think we did have a whirlwind romance i have to admit we met very quickly and married very quickly probably within i want to say three four months of meeting you were married we married Wow. We were married. My parents, and, my parents got uh, engaged within three months of meeting one another, you know? It's a little crazy. They've been together it is for crazy. 40 years. You know, I mean, that's the thing. Is there, there's, a, there's success stories, and I, I don't know what people thought. Maybe they didn't bank on us, frankly. Um, we are, now I think people do. But I think that we were, once we got married, we were probably surprised by what we got. 
Um, we really are opposites. They're very, there are similarities. We're both, we have a good sense of humor, I'd say. Um, but, and we appreciate, we both are willing to say fuck when, when we want. And we're, we both have friends that are really guarded by that. But we, we share a certain, he's going to kill me for this, which said fuck. <laughs> That's what he does. But, um, That's all right. I, I say fuck. <laughs> we just, I think we really, we, we just share a certain uh, humor and relaxed atmosphere that is um, maybe not found in our communities. I'm just blabbling. You mean in your com- you mean in your the communities you were raised in, or in the communities? In yeah, Phoenix? the communities we were raised in. You know, I mean, I think um, uh, both of us are very concerned about morality for our children and raising them well. However, I do appreciate in our household we're very open with one another and there's a candor, and I find that sometimes that doesn't happen when people are concerned about um, behaving well. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, yeah, and I mean, I'm up against that. I have a kid. So it's like, how do you, when you say you're concerned about morality and raising your children well, how does that manifest? Do you know what I'm saying? Can you give any, like, examples of things you've been wrestling with, like, what to tell your kids? I don't know how old they are, but it... they're they're little. I mean, I have two little girls, one's seven and one's five, and you know, I it's funny because they were they've just recently been exposed to mean people. I don't think prior to going to school, they weren't really aware that some people can say mean things like "I'm not going to be your best friend," and these things really hurt their feelings. And oh my god, um, it's kind of a strange. I don't know, you have children. I have a daughter. I'm like already. How old is your daughter? She's two and a half, but I'm already dreading. Okay, so she's still dread, little. Dreading somebody being mean to her. <laughs> it, it's horrible because it happens to all of us, and I guess we learn to um, cope with it in various ways. But that first time, there's my—I mean, my seven-year-old, for example. She's so she just she's floored by the fact that people say these things. She doesn't understand, and. Um, it's it's hard to manage their hurts and to teach them to kind of blow it off in many ways, yeah, like, but what, not what, be like that. What do you tell her? Like that's the thing. Like what do you say in the heat when she's like, "Mommy, so and so told me that she hates me." Like what do you say? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have to. I, I'm I'm probably not great at. It. I say things like, "Well, you know, kids sometimes say mean things, but you can't take it personally because they're not really trying. They're not really thinking about hurting you. They're trying to." Um, boost themselves up, you know, all the little cliches. Um, and I said, "There's people just say mean things, honey, and you just can't be mean back. Um, I do a lot of that. I mean, but, you know, their exposure is we just took our um, kids and my in-laws to the Renaissance Festival in uh, Phoenix. And they, they're... You mean like people eating like large, like chicken legs and wearing turkey legs yes exactly the whole thing it's completely removed from history there's no like (laughs) sense of history in here but um it's just this is not a mean thing but what i said it's just food and outfits it is it is and there's lots of cleavage and there happened to be um just you know there was a, a show with pirates and it was incredibly body which is probably the word they'd want me to use body and um, my girls were exposed to this, and I mean, you're, you're, it's going to happen. You know, there's there's sexuality all in the world, and you have to suddenly explain it to your kids, and you don't want to avoid it. And I guess that's what I'm saying about my husband and I. I think that we're real we're realistic about what's out there, 
and we don't want to necessarily hide our children from it. We want to protect them and teach them how to deal with it, but we're not, we haven't created an atmosphere where um, we have to be afraid of it necessarily. And I think that that's what I mean by what I really appreciate about our opposites attracting is that we're, um, we're together in this. Yeah, well, and you know, it's tough too because you can't you can't protect your kids from the world, you know. And I've seen I've seen parents do that, you know, where you I mean, especially back in my childhood, I remember like friends' parents or you know, you'd see I, I don't know, I remember noticing it like certain certain friends of mine or certain relatives of mine were like extremely sheltered by comparison, and I think it was done out of concern, but it winds up screwing kids up. I think if they don't. Get it really them. does. You gotta, really you, you gotta let them get in there and mix it up. It's just the way the. It's, it's, you know, works. there's a, there's got to be like a fine line. I mean, I think then that's that's also part of probably my background is being um, pretty religious. Is that um, there were a lot of sheltered kids, and sometimes I wonder if that being sheltered from things makes it really seductive. Um, for example, like never seeing R-rated movies or something. The moment these kids are on their own, they're dying to not just watch it but participate. <laughs> oh, and yeah. yeah, no, there's like yeah, that's what I worry about a lot. I know, yeah, no, you got to let your kids see R-rated movies early, and and I think, uh, I mean, not the and, and you got to pick the right ones. I mean, you know, do you remember your first R-rated film? Uh, I think it was, I mean, I was really bad. I was, I was tuned into all this stuff when I was really, really little. And I remember staying up. I remember having a slumber party with my friends when I was probably six or seven years old. And we all stayed up and watched the, the Steve Martin movie, The Man with Two Brains, which I planned. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's so, probably great though, isn't it? Oh, it's fantastic. And there was like yeah. a, there was like a boob scene, which we thought was awesome, you know? And, <laughs> I think mine was, um, Saturday Night Fever with John Travolta and I was like 77. Yeah. Which was the year of my husband's birth, by the way. <laughs> um, I saw that, and I remember my mom taking me out during the rape scene, which I still have never seen to this day. Um, and that was probably too much. I think that that might have been a little overboard. I also saw, I remember seeing, do you remember that very bad horror flick, um, Amityville Horror with the pig eyes? Oh, yeah. Like, all the, like, I was such a horror freak when I was a kid. Like, I would watch I anything, like Amityville Horror, The Nightmare Before Elm Street, The Evil Dead, all that stuff, you know? Well, I'm still living with the Amityville Horror thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to shake, isn't it? <laughs> it is, it is. So, uh, you know, I want to ask, too, like, your parents converted from Judaism to Christianity when you were younger. That's not, no, that's not something you see a lot. Uh, why did that happen? Do you know? Um, I think they were both, um, you know, my mom converted first, and I think um, they were both kind of, I, I guess we could call them hippies. They came out of the 60s, and um, that's one thing that I'm super grateful for. I think they presented to me at a really young age a sort of a, um appreciation of of racial differences and um i was definitely raised on like martin luther king jr and hippies and jethro toll and a love of music and i think they definitely were on a quest for meaning and it always it haunted them and i think that they both at different times found their meaning in the religious convictions. Yeah, that's it. Well, you know, but you but you say hippies and and then you say religious convictions. Those two things don't necessarily go together 
a lot. They don't. I think for my parents it did. I think, you know, I mean, I grew up with a, a cat named Gandhi after Mahatma Gandhi. <laughs> and, I mean, they were big time into the peace movement. And for them, uh, being a hippie was a philosophical thing. It was definitely a, a quest for um, peace, a spiritual peace. And it was not simply... I don't know. They, first of all, they were monogamous married people, so it wasn't about free love. It was more about find true meaning in life. So they were like they were like authentically. I think that's cool. That's like what hippies at their best are. I think. Yeah, they were. I mean, they were. You know, I remember seeing like Godspell when I was a little kid, and um, I think they had. I, I could be imagining this, but I kind of remember a poster on their little apartment wall that said, "Make love, not war." Yeah. And um, we had Gandhi the cat, but we also had Baba Ram Dass the dog. Um, <laughs> they, they were really so into seriously. it. Seriously. Yeah, they were into it. And, you know, it, it's funny because we went from that to conservative Christianity by the time I was third, in third grade. So, yeah, I had a weird background. Well, and, and you know, I, they, they say, too, like the people who convert are always the most, like, uh, intense or, or devout. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, Oh, yeah. I've heard that before. They were intense. Yeah. They so were intense. They were really into it. Like, when somebody converts in their adulthood, then they, they, they get really into it, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So are and, you, you know, the best part is my mom now, back to the Jewish stuff, she is your typical Jewish grandma, mother-in-law. However, she's a Christian, too. So you've got this whole thing going, and my, my dear husband man- manages it beautifully. Wow. It's like double the guilt, you know? You got, well, I guess you don't, oh, yeah. have, you don't have, it's not Catholic, so, so it's not like the full double whammy, but it's... Right. No, my, yeah, and my, my mother-in-law, my Catholic mother-in-law tends to, um, she doesn't live here well as my mom does, but my, mother, my mother-in-law tends to stand back a little and not be quite, like, in your face, maybe. Yeah. I love my mom, but she's a little in your face. Oh, she is? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking back now about the whole visitation thing and staying in people's houses and having mm-hmm. house guests and everything. Like, let me ask you this. Do you, when you go places and you stay with people, do, do you feel bad? <laughs> yeah, I do. I totally do. I, 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 you know, I, I don't, I'm not social either. I mean, despite the fact that I'll, I'm a big extrovert and I'll say anything, I really like to be alone a lot. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm extroverted. I think, you know, I don't know what, I don't know how to categorize myself because I can be around people. I do this show. I can talk to people. I like people, but I'm not a person who, after being in a big group of people is energized by it traditionally or typically. I'm usually exhausted and need like to be alone in a dark room. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, I, to be honest, I'm kind of like, I like to be with people one-on-one or talk to one person at a time. I don't really like the big group scene. Yeah, it's hard. I don't like, yeah, I'm kind of that way. Small groups or, you know, a good party can be fun if you're with the right, right people. But it's just, it's, you know, it's better to have like a dinner with like some friends or something. Right. Um, but I, you know, when I go traveling, I don't like to stay with people. I have a rule that I will not stay in someone's home for more than two nights. That's uh, a good rule. That's yeah. a good rule. I don't, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of staying over with people. Just because I always feel like even if they're being nice, like they secretly hate me and they want me out. <laughs> me too. I do too. <laughs> so it's like, I'm either in a hotel or I'm not doing it. And if it's like, if, yeah, if, if, I, if I am staying there, then it's just too nice. So anyhow, um, so raised in Chicago, 
Raised in this uh, kind of hippie... Raised in Chicago, but I moved here early. We were here by the time I was three. Oh, wow. Okay, so you're, you've been in Arizona your whole life pretty much then. Yeah. Now, okay, because I've been to Phoenix a couple of times. Right. And, I mean, I live in Los Angeles, so it's going to sound silly for me to say this, but I had a hard time, like, wrapping my mind around Phoenix. Um, and it's a smaller, obviously a smaller town than L.A., which is notoriously difficult to wrap one's head around. But right. um, do, you, do you love it there? or do you? I, mean, I do not. I'm stuck here. You're stuck. I'm stuck here. Why? Um, you know, I just, you know, why am I stuck here? Um, my life is just here at this point. You know, my when I went to grad school, I went to New York, and my husband was, he's, he's been all over the place. He was born in New England, went to school in Tennessee and Portland, Oregon. What does he and do? He's a scientist. He's a chemist. Okay. And um, we ended up getting married, living here. My mother is a widow. Um, I have jobs and friends, and he got a job here, and we've just we've had children. I think we have thought about moving, but in many ways, this is where our roots are now. And like, I don't the, love Phoenix. And in the I'd su- love to go back to the East. Go ahead. I was going to say, Sorry. in the summer, or is it just insane? Like The heat is what I always think about in the summer. It's like a, you just live with it, and there's like mist and the... Do you know those Mister things, like, or is it? Am I, yeah, we don't. We don't have one of those. But I'll tell you, it is. It's miserable. However, I went to. Um, I heard you rattling about or talking about how the AWP conference kind of is not your thing. But I went to the AWP conference just recently in Boston, and it was snowing, and that killed me. I was just thinking, you know what? No matter what I say about the weather, I need to live in Phoenix because that snow. I love Boston, and I love it in back east. I think I am full-fledged Arizona person right now. Yeah, well, you know, I, I grew up in the Midwest and uh, and went to college in Colorado, and I, I was I had my fair share of winters, you know, all throughout my first like twenty yeah. twenty two twenty three years, and then you come out to Los Angeles, and I've lived here for twelve years, and it makes you soft quickly. Like I, it do, does. I don't deal with any weather. There's no weather here. It's always perfect, I know. and I love it. <laughs> I know. I have to admit, I you know I'll complain about the heat for a little bit, but I don't want that snow. And it's beautiful. I just don't want to ever walk in it. No, I like to ski. You know, I, I'll yeah. go. I'll go skiing, and maybe you know, I don't know, a little like a trip for a long weekend, and there's some snow, and it's pretty, is great. But right, I don't want to scrape my windshield ever again. I know. <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing. But um, so okay, so Phoenix, that's where your life is. Yes. It's uh, like hellishly hot in the summer, like 100, 120 degrees. Do you just stay inside? Is that like your winter where you just kind of like hole up and write and read? Um, You know, I mean, I, I wish it were, but it probably isn't because I have kids and my husband is is determined to let them play outside when, when we need to let them play outside. So that man will take them outside and play. I definitely want to stay inside and pump up the AC. Okay, because like that's what I was gonna say. Like when you grow up there as a child, and there's like in the summer, I remember like running around with my friends and playing tag and baseball. And our kids, I guess I did it. Kids are just outside in 120 degrees, and that's the way it goes. We just do it. Yeah. We just okay. we go swimming. Okay. Yeah, swimming. And we wear shorts. I mean, everybody <laughs> wears shorts all the time. And you just have to stay hydrated, I guess. You know. Right. Um, right. Okay, and so you you said you went back to New York for school. I did. So that was. I went to- undergrad that was graduate i went to um i got my undergrad degree in tucson which is only like two hours south of phoenix 
And then I went to um, New York City for to NYU for graduate school for my MA, not in politics. And then I came back to school here eventually and got my MFA in Phoenix at ASU. So three degrees. For, yes, yes. Okay, so U of A undergrad, and then uh, you went to New York to get a degree and a master's in politics. I did. I did. Did you want? Um, did you want to be a politician? You know, I didn't want to be a politician. I wanted to be in the foreign service. I think. I um, I went to U of A and I got a double major in poli sci and creative writing, and it was during. I mean, this was early '90s. It was kind of after. I don't even know if your audience is going to know this, but remember Live Aid? Oh yeah, I'm, you know. Well, I grew up totally Live Aid and Band Aid and We Are the World, <laughs> and I think um, I was really just like bedazzled, or I just loved it. I was and. Bono and U2 and Sting and Free Tibet and End Apartheid. Those were the things that kind of moved me the most. And so you, I did want... You, go ahead. I was going to say, you were like kind of, kind of inherited some of your parents' idealism. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, yeah, I was going to be... I was going to work with Bono at Amnesty International. <laughs> and um, So really, it was I, all, I mean it. It was I all mean, about I Bono. Was. It was all about I Bono. Was, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> you know, I'm still all about Bono, actually. But um, not really. Um, but I wanted to get my poli-sci degree. The creative writing thing was always there, but I did never seem practical. And so I did go get my um, MA in politics, intending to take the foreign service exam, which I did do. I think, you know, it's been so long, but I think I failed it twice. Um, what is that? I did, you know, it's this big, like... It was, at least at the time, like an SAT test where you did standardized tests. I think it was, you know, I don't fully remember. I think it was English skills, math skills, and maybe very general politics, if I remember correctly. Um, And I think I failed by, like, something ridiculous, like five points two times, and um, which is good. I'm glad I did because I wouldn't have ended up back where I'm I'm at now, but... um, I did work at Amnesty International for a little bit, and I worked in non-governmental organizations for a few years um, after my master's, but it became very clear immediately that um, I need to go back into creative writing full-time. Why? Um, you know, I got my master's, I guess this is in 94, and um, I started working at Amnesty International pretty much like maybe the week after I graduated. In a, in not in a, in when I talk about working at Amnesty International, I was doing nothing except admin work. Um, did you meet but Bono? But I realized, I'm sorry? Did you meet Bono? I never did. I never did, which is probably disappointment number one. <laughs> um, I just, you know, I recognized right off the bat that I wasn't, this isn't my thing. I never really was good at it. I I had no ambition. I really wanted to go home and write. And I did. I started probably writing that week too. Um, You know, I, one, one incident that sticks out to me when I was an undergrad, this was back in Tucson, is I was taking my first poli-sci class. I had no politics, no political background, except for the fact that I really liked Martin Luther King Jr. (laughs) And, um, that's a good, that's a good, that's a good foundation. It was enough, you know, um, I wanted to truly save the world. I mean, it was so idealistic and silly, but I really wanted to do that. And I took this poli sci class, and the teacher called me into his office, and I did my first paper was on 
the anti-apartheid movement, and he was very kind to me. He said to me, though, um, I don't know if you're analytical enough to be in poli-sci. And then he told me that I reminded him of his daughter. And I remember two things. I remember, like, being offended, like, really mortified and defiant that this man would tell me I'm not analytical enough. And then I was also vague. I felt like it was a vaguely sexual thing that he was, like, telling me I reminded him of his daughter. It seemed kind of inappropriate. And, you know, this man right now is probably, like, either dead or old, so I have to be careful. Um, it was not a sexual come on, as far as I know, but it might have been. Um, but that incident stuck out to me very much so. I was 18 or 19 at the time, and I think I went ahead with poli-sci in a very defiant way. However, I think there was truth to what he said. I really wasn't cut out for it. I did not have... I didn't believe in it, frankly. I mean, I think by the time I got my master's degree, which was several years later, um, I emerged kind of on the scene, really thinking it was a lot of hot air and not believing in politics and the potential to save the world, which is what I really wanted. Um, I just, you know, there was a lot of rhetoric and it seemed really useless. It's so just, I, it's a mess. I just started writing. Politics is like increasingly like, uh, well, it's like, I think it's really messy and dispiriting, obviously, but I also think it's a necessity, you know, so I kind of like teeter back and forth. Like the, there has to be government, you know, you have there to, does. there has to be some it, way of organizing a society, but it's just, it's in, just inherently messy and dissatisfying and that you have to have a certain uh, willingness to engage that. You do. And, you know, there's a lot of people in it that um, mean well and are do-gooders and they're, they are doing good work. But the, um, it can be exasperating, and you can burn out really quickly. And I know, like, the people that I worked with at Amnesty International, for example, they they were hard workers, and they really believed in what they were doing, and they did accomplish things. Um, but it, it's hard work with, with just you can burn out so young. And I think I did, I moved on to something else by the time I ended up leaving politics. I was in another non-governmental organization. And there I met a lot of the bigwigs. I think... Um, Clinton was in office at the time, and I remember I was like a, another admin assistant, still nothing big, but I my job was pretty much to kind of arrange tables and chairs for big people, and um, it was like Henry Kissinger and Hillary Clinton at the time and um, Madeleine Albright, and I remember kind of having an arrogance and disdain, which was probably the mark of my age, too. I mean, I was 25, but being really... Um, cynical about their jobs and what they did, and that cynicism was probably going to kill me. To it wasn't good. I just didn't believe in them. Do you have you changed, or, or you st you still not believe in them? I still don't believe in them, but I'm I'm not as cynical. <laughs> I'm not as um, mean spirited. Maybe I think. Thankfully, I got out. I mean, I was really probably in danger of becoming one of those people who does their job, hates it, goes home, hates life. Um, and you know, that's for love slave. My novel pretty much came out of that experience. Um, now I still don't have a lot of hope in our politicians, but I do know that there are some good people still trying to do good work. I'm glad I'm doing something else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a, it's like a necessary evil. And I had this theory that 
I think a lot of them, maybe even a majority of them get in, get into it for the right reasons. And I think maybe Mm -hmm. the the demands uh, on them and the weaknesses that they, that they might have in their character, just like we all do might corrupt them as they go, go on. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, but I just, I don't know. I don't know. I just, we need good people to do it. And so if, if we all just say it's just a shit show and it's a disaster and we all turn our back on it, then really bad people will wind up in those jobs, you know? <laughs> no, it's totally true. And, you know, the same thing about the it corrupting, I think that can happen in literature. Oh, I can, mean, you know, yeah. there could be, this, we could write and lose track of writing good stuff and writing for popularity or money and leave behind the art almost. Um, and there's a temp- I, I don't, you know, I, there is a little bit of a temptation. I was listening to your um, podcast with, uh, I, I'm going to mispronounce her name, Jamie Atten- Attenberg. Yes, Attenberg. Um, and I think she was mentioning something about how um, she would write um, a commercial novel if she could, but she really couldn't. Does this sound familiar? You probably, I mean, I've done a hundred and something of these, so they all, they all blend together, but that sounds like something Jamie might say. <laughs> well, it's a great point. You know, I have plenty of friends who tell me that I should just, you know, pop out a, a, a seller, a bestseller, try. And um, there's a part of me, just like Jamie's mentioned, I wish I could. I wish I could just write one really quickly. But there is this something where I'm too devoted to my task, and maybe I should be really thankful for that. But um, I'm, I really don't want to write a piece of garbage. And I, but I think that temptation is so present because we are not making money and we need to feed our kids. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, it's like I just did, I mean, I just did the uh, monologue for an upcoming show where I spoke to this almost exactly, you know, and, and um, I think it's, I mean, I think it's a it's a disaster in the making. If you if your natural inclination is literary in nature or quirky or whatever you want to say, like you're just not you don't have mainstream sensibilities and you can't crank out popular fiction easily, mm-hmm. like like some people can, you know. Then to yeah. sit to sit down with that intention and to try to shoehorn yourself into that box or to shoehorn yourself into that shoe. <laughs> Right. Uh, you know, it's just, it, it, it's, you can't do it. You'll be miserable doing it. And then the, the end product is likely to be not so great. So, right. The, but then the other side of the coin is that how do you keep doing, like investing all of the time and, and energy, uh, that goes into writing a book. If at the end of the day, your odds of reaching more than, a, you know, a few hundred readers are pretty difficult. It's very tough for me to wrap my head around all that be- it is. on a practical level. Like I understand like art is enriching for its own sake and that, you know, the doing of the thing has its benefits and that we can't think about outcome, but it's like, yeah, easy, easy for someone to say who's got a lot of money or something. <laughs> like It is, you know, I mean, I have to, you know, I, I mentioned this in other places. I did. I gave up at some point. I thought I wasn't going to do it back when I was in New York about the time when I was just, discovering that polysci was not going to be good for me. And I started writing again. I wrote a manuscript um, pretty quickly called um, So I Slept with Mickey Rourke. And um, You like Mickey. Uh, you know, I don't so much anymore. But, but you did. did. You did, yeah. Okay. I he, did, he I sh- did. He shows up in your work. I know this. So I know. I'm haunted by Mickey Rourke um, <laughs> and my hippie past. But uh, Mickey Rourke 
Yes, I wrote So I Slept with Mickey Rourke. And, um, did you? I, I did. I wrote this thing. I didn't know I did not sleep with him. Okay. Um, we did shake hands once. Where? Um, he made a movie in Tucson when I was an undergrad called Harley Davidson, The Marlboro Man with oh. Don Johnson. Oh, yeah. He's a real winner. Yeah. Um, uh, he made that movie, and this movie inspired this novel. And I wrote the novel, and I sent it to Random House. This was when I was 25. And a Random House editor called me up. Um, I'm going to name him. And if he is listening, he can contact me because I've been looking for him for years. <laughs> His name is Ian Jackman. Um, he was an English guy. And he liked it. And he was a young editor at Random House. And we we spoke to about it, and I worked on revisions for him, and they held on to it for about eight months. And this was all when I was about 25. And so I thought, I'm going to make it. I can't believe this. Um, and I was, I was just floored. And I remember at the end of about eight months, we spoke on the phone. I, I went into his office a couple of times, and I remember at the end, he told me, you know what, I showed it around, and it's just a no-go. And I was heartbroken. And he asked to um, keep the manuscript um, because it was uh, it's special to him. And, of course, I agreed. And um, I immediately took that manuscript to Simon & Schuster. And they did look at it and rejected it in two seconds. Um, but that was when I was 25. And then nothing happened until uh, I was, I mean, I'm 43 right now. I, my, both of my books were published when I was 42 years old. So I did write nonstop during that time, but pretty much without success. So I don't know how people do it. I don't, yeah. I, you know, I, I, you know, right now, in all honesty, I'm in a different place where I, than I was when I was 25. At 25, I wanted, I needed money, and I wanted a random house for Simon & Schuster. At 43, I, um, my husband is the breadwinner, and, you know, and that's not everybody's in that position, and I can go with a small publisher who really is favoring literary quality over everything. And I'm just in a different world right now. But I remember being that 25-year-old who needed to support myself and pay my student loans badly. Yeah. Well, you know, that's the thing is that I find that, you know, it doesn't get talked about a lot. Um, people usually don't make it explicit, but... Uh, I would say a majority of people who are able to write books have some sort of fortunate situation happening, whether it's, you know, a spouse is able to breadwin and give them time and space to work or they have inherited money or they, um, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, it, Oh yeah. so it's like, it, it troubles me to think of all these talented people without advantages who don't have a chance to do work. And it also sort of saddens me that like, the only books that we are seeing are coming from the privileged class, you know, or, it's the, true. or the vast majority are coming from the privileged class. And so I think it's a big problem, but I don't know. I don't have a solution. You know, I mean, it's just, I guess, no, it's, me either. And, and, and you know what, like, you know, you, you think about these publishers, these publishing houses, um, they're usually named after people. And those people were usually really wealthy and just wanted to make books and, you know, like, like right. Simon and Schuster. I'm, I'm imagining the Simons and the Schusters were pretty wealthy and probably um, it's, it's probably all, you know, I'm, I'm imagining that it's probably always been this way and, um, or at least to some degree. And, you know, I don't know how to fix it. And I don't know, 
if it was ever, I mean, I guess like in the mid 20th century, you could make like an actual living as a short story writer, like a good living. You know, there, right. were, there, were, there was like a small window of time when like the magazines paid big money and like you could publish two stories a year and like feed a family. Like that seems insane right. to me. That seems it's insane. Amazing. Yeah. Those, you know? those days are done. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least for the time being. But uh, do you have, um, like, are you in a place now because of your uh, situation financially and, you know, just where you are in your life where when you sit down to work, it is for the most part pure pleasure and you're doing it for the love of the thing and any kind of, like, you know, financial windfall that might happen down the road would be, like, just kind of like a, a blessing and you know what I'm saying? Like, are you sitting there? Yeah, with- I do. We're not, I'm not there at all. I am totally work full time as a, as a teacher. I'm a full time professor and my husband, uh, is deaf. I mean, that's the amazing part. He's a chemist and a scientist and I'm a professor. And so no matter how much I work compared to how much he works, my husband probably makes like 7 million times, not 7 million, uh, eight times more than I will ever make on a, in a given year. I'm a teacher and I could work like crazy, but I'm an English teacher. And so, you know, we're always, we're definitely, I'm the struggling writer type. I work, I write when I can. We don't do any childcare. So I pretty much work from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. And then I become full-time mom. And um, I write when I can. And again, my husband helps out a lot so I can do that. Yeah, that's the way it goes. If I got it. There was a financial success due to my writing. We would both be shocked and incredibly happy. I want to. I need to talk to more. I mean, there's not that. There's just not that many of them out there. But I want to have some writers on this show who have had huge financial windfalls. (laughs) I know it must happen. It must happen. It does. It does happen. But you know, then then it's like I think it's harder to get them to do podcasts because they're like, I am on vacation and don't need to. Um, well, let me ask you. I totally want to know this because yeah. I mean, your job sounds great. Frankly, you are a writer. You do the podcast. You these are associated with the nervous breakdown, right? Yes. And so, are you doing are those? Your basically your main jobs. They are, but it's changing because I have a kid now, and possibly we might, you know, we might want to have another one. So it's like it's in flux, and it's stressing me out, you know. But uh, in in all the natural ways, but it's not going to be right. sustainable because the income is too variable. There's the benefits issue. My wife, uh, has good work, but it's like, you know, it's, it's difficult to, to balance it all. And I have been pretty industrious, I think, in trying a lot of different things, you know, whether it's like, uh, you know, starting a publishing imprint to doing an online book club, to doing this and trying to sell sponsorships to selling ads, but you know, I was, it's, I could go on, you know, it's just all these different things within the context of new and digital publishing. And it's just a pain in the ass to monetize it. It is. You do, you wind up doing a lot of work for not a lot of money. Right. And the question is how long, and, and you know, the thing too, is that on the more optimistic side, like there's been some success, you know, like I've seen things grow and this show, this show has caught on, uh, in ways that I, that exceeded expectations. And so there's a feeling inside of me that like, wow, if I can keep going, uh, you know, it's only been, it hasn't even been two years yet and it takes time to build, you know, and to, right. uh, to get an audience. So it's like, wow, if I could keep this going for say five years, it'd be interesting to see how many listeners I have then. And then what that means to potential sponsors and so on and so forth. So, right. you know, it's all those kinds of considerations, but in the meantime, you've got like, you know, we live in Los Angeles, which is expensive. And then, um, you know, you have children and all that stuff that goes into that. So, 
They're uh, very expensive, those little things. Yeah, I don't know what. I'm going to start dealing weed. I don't know what I'm going to do. I know. <laughs> uh, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a, a crossroads time, I think, for me. And we'll see how things yeah. turn, you know. Well, I think that's, that's really pretty typical for a writer, uh, a writer who works as a writer, um, especially you're scrambling, you're looking at different avenues. A lot of it is fun work, um, but it is, it's very little and it's very difficult to have a family. Yes. And so that's the thing too, is that like, I really enjoy, I think so many of us feel that way. It's like, God, you just love doing it. It's like, it's good. It's a good way to work. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, and you get stuff out of it. It's not always easy. And some days like, you know, there's a lot of struggle that goes into it, but the, the good parts are really good and it's true and they're sustaining. And so there's, you know, there's a strong drive to keep working creatively and to try to do your own thing. And then, you know, it's, uh, then I think a lot of us are driven by the success stories that we see, you know, because right. statistically they're extremely unlikely, but when you see one, it's like, that could be me. And, and you know, <laughs> <You're right. laughs> and, you know and you know what, it, that's a good thing to think because it could be you. I mean, I, you know, I don't begrudge anybody who has that kind of optimism because why not have it, you know, like, no, you have to have that. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, anybody who gets it done, I tend to be happy for whether it's like, I mean, I tend to be happy for anybody who finds their way into print and who goes through the act of writing a book, however, quote unquote, good or bad it is, you know, cause, right, because, I because I know how much I goes into it. But I love to right. see I love to see people do well at this because um, I don't know, it, it, I think it heartens the rest of us or it should hearten the rest of us uh, as opposed to making us green with envy. But I, I guess there's a little bit of that, too, you know, and right. I, I'm more heartened, to be honest. I mean, I don't mean to sound holier than now, but I don't. I don't know. Do you experience? You're not plagued with jealousy. I mean, it's like, yeah. I mean, sure, you wish you had that, but um, no, I don't sit around like going, "God, that," you know. I, I don't do that. I think it's like. Is there like a writer you're kind of jealous of? Um, no, I don't That's know. Good. Yeah, no. I, I'm really, I mean, I'm really, this is the thing is that like, I'm not as big and I talked about this on a recent show, but I'm not as big of a, I'm not that into it the way that some people are like, I don't keep up with it that intensively. And maybe that's part of the problem. You know, like, but no, I don't, I don't, I, I don't sit there and like track the business and see who got what deal. And, um, you know, I'm, a, I'm aware of publications because of what I do, but like, I just, I'm not sitting there and I'm not all up in people's business and. I think like my attitude about, um, you know, the big windfall successes or the books that just take off like moon rockets, you know, I think obviously quality is an issue, but I also think there's just such a huge amount of luck involved, like in terms right. of the right people at the right time, supporting the book, the right publisher, the right editor, the right connections, the right reviewer in the right mood on the right day and the right publication. And, you know, certain chips have to fall and sometimes it happens. And so when I look at that, it's also wild to me that right. when, it, when it happens for somebody, it's just like, wow, you know, like it's, right. it's like somebody winning the lottery. How can you hate somebody for buying the ticket at the, the Powerball? At the, I mean, you might be a little jealous, but it's not like you can be like pissed, you know? Right. I don't know. So what do you see for yourself? Like, do you, are you just going to continue to plug and you know, this is what you're going to do and come hell or high water? Or do you find yourself thinking, well, I'll do one more. And if that one doesn't go, then I'm going to you know, start doing pottery or something. No, you know what? I think, to be honest, I'm one of those people that can only write. So that's like all I can do well. 
and I am working on a third book, and I have in my head the fourth one's coming out at me, and I just, my dream would be to be able to go full-time writing. I, I don't foresee that ever happening, um, but yeah, I think I'm in it for the long haul. So when you say the, the fourth one is coming at you, how does that emerge? You know, right, the book I'm working on right now is um, it's tentatively called Sappho Unspoken, and it's about marriage and drug addiction, and um, I'm really heavily into it. So that one, I'm, I'm feeling like it's going to come to fruition really well. Um, the fourth one, I'm really dying to write, which is probably why I talked about it so much, I'm really dying to write a comedic novel about um, ethnicity and religion and race and make it comedic. Um, but I feel that that's a pretty... I have to be careful with it because I want to be sensitive and I'd love to be able to be outrageous too, but I, I, I worry about my ability to do it and the ability to make something that's perceived as being inoffensive. I do not want to write something offensive. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? When you wade into certain territories, it's impossible. I mean, and if you do it right or you do it well, it, somebody's going to be offended, right? That's true. But, you know, um, I really, you know, I, I've, because I've been watching the Woody Allen thing so much and I've looked at a lot of the criticism, you get a lot of um, comments about self-hating Jews from Philip Roth and I've heard about it with Woody Allen and I hate that kind of conversation. It just, first of all, the best people I know are probably a little self-hating. Um, I hate myself a little bit. So Of course, we all do. We yeah. all do. All good writers hate themselves just a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's healthy. So, you know, and, and Philip Roth is one of the best. Um, but uh, then also, you're right, you do offend people, but there's a certain ability that certain people, like Eddie Murphy, um, they have this ability to... Um, it's not making fun of uh, racial differences or racial kinds. It's rather uh, a loving, tender playfulness that I, I wish I could incorporate into my work. And I hope that I can do that. But I, I'm still struggling with how that's done you by mean, a white girl. And you see it in Woody Allen, you said? Not as much. I see it more in Eddie Murphy, but I see a certain fearlessness maybe in Woody Allen, his ability to um, tackle it at the risk of people saying that he's a self-hating Jew, which, again, I think is absurd. Um, playing with certain things like the the mustard on your corned beef sandwiches. And um, I just remember this scene from Annie Hall. Is it Annie Hall? Where he, no, it's Crimes and Misdemeanors, where I think he's converting to, uh, he's going to convert to Catholicism, and he sets out his Wonder Bread and mayo on an altar. Do you remember this? <laughs> I, you know, Crimes and Misdemeanors is one of my favorite Woody Allen movies, but I don't remember the scene. It's not well. That has a great scene in it um, with the. Oh, I just haven't seen too many Woody Allens. I don't. Maybe it's the one where he thinks he's dying. He's hypochondriac and he thinks he's going to die. But at any rate, um, I love how he plays with religious stereotypes and I wish I could do it and I do feel that my position as being sort of raised as a Protestant with a Jewish heritage might really and my marriage I mean my husband's great about this stuff we are we're really we're able to be playful at home about it in a I think in a in a really loving way 
So I, I would really love to write this book. I'm well, just um, yeah, it's scared. Inter- it's interesting, though, because like, I have uh, friends. My wife is this way. Like, my wife can make jokes about race, race in particular, uh, but race, religion that are really funny. And she'll do it, you know, with in the presence of people of all, you know, backgrounds, and everybody laughs, you know, and like I know it works. Well, you know, and there's, but it only works if it's done well and done in a certain way and with a certain intention. And I think I'm too, I guess I'm too interior. I'm overthinking things, and I'm worried I'm going to offend somebody, and that almost like ruins it. You just almost have to be fearless. (laughs) You do, you do. You know, Eddie Murphy is a great example. I think he's pretty fearless. Like, just go watch some of his YouTube. He was so good. Like what? From, um, and, from his early career, you mean, when he was doing stand-up? or? Yeah, and from, um, like, remember Coming to America and all that stuff? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I, he did it. He did it really well. I haven't, I mean, some of his, was, I don't remember what the last movie I saw of his, but um, he used to do, do it so well. And sometimes Chris Rock does, too. Oh, um, yeah. He's good. Well, I remember Eddie, uh, remember when Eddie was on Saturday Night Live and he did that yeah. like SNL short called Mr. White where he dressed up oh, as a white guy? Yeah. I remember like when I was a little kid, like that to me was the funniest thing ever. It was. And you know, I, I envy that, ability, that comedic ability. I sense, but you know, you've got, I think you've got a little bit of that. You've got it going, you know, you could just, I think, we'll see. yeah, you just, have, and like the thing too, is that it, it's one thing to be a performer and to be doing, you know, sketch comedy or to be, uh, even making a movie, but comedy in, um, long form fiction is to me really difficult to pull off. And I know, and, and I say that knowing how rare it is for me to be reading a book and to laugh out loud. It almost, I never, know it almost never happens, you know? You should read Love Slave. You should read Love Slave. I'm pretty funny. You are? I mean, so there you go. I am. I am. The Free Chronicles is not as funny, but Love Slave is very funny. Um, so you mentioned earlier, I'm not going to let you get out of here without at least talking a little bit about your hippie past. Okay. And you also mentioned that the book, the Sappho, what, what's the name Sappho of it? Sappho Unspoken. Is about drug addiction. Like, did you have a crazy hippie childhood or youth, like early adulthood? Um, <laughs> no, I really didn't. I really did. I was a good little Christian girl. I really was. Um, I did smoke pot in my life. Um, I don't now, and I'm pretty fiercely anti-drugs, um, even pot. Um, Why? Well, here it goes, Mom, I'm sorry, but my dad did smoke pot for a, a big chunk of my childhood. He probably gave it up when I was still fairly young, but I have very strong memories of it. And um, I really, I remember my father, may he rest in peace, he died actually in a car accident, but he, um, I remember him rolling joints and sitting on the floor and smoking it. And I don't remember seeing him stoned, but of course I did. But I just remember the process and it was fairly haunting. And um, I, that, that's not the main experience that I've had with drugs. I mean, you know, anyway, to get to be, 43 in life, you've seen a lot of people drunk or doing drugs, probably. And um, I would say the two big motivations for this novel, though I have that past, my father truly did kind of give it up and become Mr. Born Again Christian. Um, The two main influences, probably the idea of marriage and um, my husband's family. There's quite a few recovering alcoholics. Well, they're Irish. And... Uh, yeah, of course. And um, just the experience of addiction and marriage. And, and as far as marriage goes, 
there's this, I've just been really thinking about the idea of how exclusive and the secrets in a marriage where husbands and wives, they have certain understandings between them that are pretty incommunicable to other people. And um, no matter how crazy the marriage is, there's often these shared things that people in a marriage have. And I'm kind of trying to get to the heart of that in my book right now um, and how addiction plays into that. Interesting. Yeah, I'm just, I'm really interested in how a non-addict copes with addiction in a marriage and the effect of that, the secrets that people have in their marriage. Yeah. And so, but your husband is not a recovering alcoholic or anything. You know, he's been sober. He is, but he's been sober for years. Oh, he has. Okay. Yeah, no, it's... In- his, my, my father-in-law is a drug and alcohol counselor. Ah, okay. Well, yeah, and I mean, it's like a, it's a huge thing. And, uh, I've certainly seen plenty of it in my life, you know, uh, with friends and some family, I guess, but mostly with friends of mine. And I had like a pretty festive, uh, you know, I say I had a festive youth, but it was really a very narrow window of time. I had like my freshman year of college, my sophomore year of college, and then I was done. (laughs) Well, that's what interests me too. I mean, you know, like the whole college party scene, I mean, I went to U of A, which is like number two party school in the country probably after ASU. And you, you probably see it a lot in California. But I often wonder my peers, because, I mean, everybody was drunk every single weekend, are they now a bunch of alcoholics? Or have they, I mean, how does it go now that we're all in our late 30s and 40s? Well, um, it can be, I mean, we, this is the thing, is that, like, I think a very small percentage of people, you know, out of the out of 100 people, how many of them actually have, like, the really addictive they have the addiction thing, you know, it's not 50, it's, it's less than 20 probably, but the ones who have it, have it bad. Um, but even still like there's like as a crutch, as a, you know, pain medicate or a pain reliever, you know, it's there. And I think about it and, uh, even like my two glasses of wine or whatever, I sometimes look at it and I'm like, well, you know, am I setting the right example? And do I, why do I feel I need this? And, you know, if I'm being honest and so, um, even moderate intake. And then you look at it more broadly and, you know, it, it occurs to me that like so many people are doing so many drugs, whether it's like, you know, the illegal drugs or it's a lot, you know, increasingly it's these, um, you know, the prescription drugs. Yeah. And, you know, that's the kind of drugs I'm pretty much dealing with in my book. I'm dealing with the legal stuff. And yeah, and it's like, it's like, that's that, I think that's over the past 10 years, there's, that's been the thing, you know, there's been this huge rise in prescription drug abuse because it has this kind of, uh, veneer of, uh, respectability or, or, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Legitimacy because it's, it's a, it's a medical drug or whatever, but, um, they don't work, you know, (laughs) they, they don't work. People are taking all these drugs to like make themselves feel better and they actually make, make you feel worse ultimately and right it's crazy yeah so anyway it sounds interesting and uh you know how far how far along are you on it um i'm feeling like hmm, it's hard to say i'm probably don't maybe halfway don't you, done don't you love that question when's it going to be done jennifer come on <laughs> i know one of my friends was joking around she said you mean you've been working all that time and you only have 30 pages <laughs> but um no i mean i'm i'm it's different you know when i wrote love slave i gushed i mean it just came out like 
puking. I just wrote it quickly, and then I revised like crazy. I'm definitely being way more careful now and more deliberate. And so it is slower, but I think the first draft is better. Yeah. If that makes sense. Is it more fun to write the other way? I go back and forth. I would love to write a book that came out in a gush. That would be lovely. Um, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it feels like more, it feels like hard work right now, but it, it's a good hard work. I, I enjoy it. I, I, I have heard you, I was listening to your podcast on talking about people who like love their work and hate their work. And I'm, I'm pretty much one that loves it. I do. Wow. Well, that's but great. It is. Uh, well, thank you for talking with me. I've really enjoyed it. I appreciate, uh, the time and wish you well on the new book and then the one after that. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. And I do wish you success in in managing all your options for the future. All right. Thanks, Jennifer. All right, you guys. There you have it. That is Jennifer Spiegel. Go get her books. The Freak Chronicles is available from Dezank Books. And Love Slave is available from Unbridled Books. You can find Jennifer online at jenniferspiegel.com. She's on Twitter at Jennifer Spiegel. And she's on the Facebook as well. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to get the app, the official Other People app, available now free of charge for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best way to listen to the program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can access premium content and the full archives, etc. So please go do that if you haven't done it already. Uh, okay, in a hurry, busy day, busy month, clock is ticking, stuff is happening, uh, I'm under pressure, I'm trying to exhibit grace under pressure, I'm trying not to get freaked out, I'm trying to breathe, I'm trying to do one thing at a time, I'm trying to stay patient, I'm trying to stay focused on one thing at a time, I'm trying to run at top speed while reading a magazine. Uh, actually, I should just run. Or read a magazine. I should choose. I should be deliberate. I should not obsess. I should not overthink the situation. Please remember that Longfellow published his first poem at age 13 and that Miguel Cervantes was 58 years old when the first part of Don Quixote was published. That is it for now, you guys. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'll be back again in a few days. We can reconvene. We can merge at the level of consciousness. We can become, for a brief time, a single organism. In the meantime, good luck to you out there in the world. Don't forget to breathe. Don't forget to uh, slow down. If you are wandering the streets of your hometown trying to distribute literature to passersby, may I recommend focusing on people who are walking. Attack the slow movers. Approach them gently, slowly, smiling, ever so slightly, and then pounce.